0: Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together here this morning as, as your people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is, who is powerful and wise and good. We thank you that you are sovereign through all of the ups and the downs of life. And we pray now that as we consider your word, that you would uh, grant us understanding of it. More than that, we pray that you'd so work in our hearts, that you would help us to respond rightly to you in all of the circumstances of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our topic this morning is one of the most uh, important uh, emotive and difficult topics of all. It's a topic that most of us will know personally. A topic that that raises deep questions in our hearts and our minds about the very nature and existence of God Himself. It is the topic of suffering. It was just one week ago now that we witnessed the uh, the terrible, devastating floods uh, in Penang. Seven people. Uh, killed four thousand, evacuated homes and churches and businesses are uh, destroyed, uh, livelihoods affected, and we continue to pray for those uh, affected. Uh, just as I preached on this last week, we would have may have heard of the the terrible earthquake that hit uh, on the border of Iraq and Iran. Another two hundred people are uh, killed, even as I preached. But we witness these disasters all the time, don't we? Uh, we look, think around this year, Hurricane Irma in the United States or the earthquake in Mexico. There were landslides uh, in Colombia that killed hundreds. Uh, maybe it didn't hit the news here, but monsoonal flooding in, in Bangladesh again affected uh, tens of thousands of people. And if we go back just that little bit further, some of us who are around back in 2004 can perhaps recall to mind that that devastating tsunami that swept through this part of the world and in a single day killed over 200,000 people. Well, others of us will uh, recall to mind uh, man-made disasters, if you like, uh, the refugee crisis that has been caused by by ISIS uh, in uh, the Middle East, or the, the current ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya Muslims that is taking place in Myanmar. Perhaps we remember the the mass shooting that just happened in in Texas uh, and Las Vegas not so long ago. Maybe we remember 9 11. But much of our experience of suffering is is not just that suffering that is out there, is it? It's the suffering that we experience personally, day by day. The suffering of depression, or cancer, or a car accident, or a relationship breakup, abuse. Almost inevitably the question comes to us as Christians. Why? Why? God, if you are so good and loving and wise, how could you have let this happen? Why me? Why now? Why don't you do something about all the pain and the suffering in the world? Why don't you do something for me? Now, the Bible has much to say in answer to those those questions. It's one of the big, big topics. Uh, of the Bible, and 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 just part of that answer comes in the passage we just read from Luke chapter thirteen. But I'm I'm very aware that this morning, that perhaps uh, beneath the surface and the smiles as we walk into the room, that there are probably many among us this morning who are who are experiencing uh, painful suffering, uh, even right now. And uh, what you need this morning is not a, a theoretical explanation about, uh, about suffering. What you need is love and care and support and prayers. And so even before we turn to this passage this morning, I just want to remind us of, of the God who speaks these words to us. He, he is the God who, earlier in Luke chapter 12, the previous chapter, he, he's counted even the hairs on our heads. He knows our suffering like no one else in this world ever could and he cares. He is the God who has promised that he would never leave us or forsake us no matter what happens. He is the the God who, who entered this world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that he might suffer in our place, that we may one day suffer no more. He is the God who gives us that hope of a new creation where sin and suffering and death will one day be wiped out forever and indeed God himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. There is no doubt. The God who speaks to us this morning is the God who is powerful and wise and good, who has done something about my suffering and will do something when Jesus returns. Now, if you're not familiar with this part of Luke's Gospel, it is the return of Jesus and the final judgment that is the big topic of this section of Luke's Gospel that begins at chapter 12. Uh, In this section, Jesus has been described as the glorious Son of Man, the one to whom all dominion and power and glory will be given. All nations uh, and languages and peoples will, will bow down and worship him forever. And Jesus has been preparing his people for that day when he returns in glory as the king. He's been preparing his people for the day when he will return as judge and and every person in this world, you and me included, will stand before his judgment throne to give an account for the way that we have lived our lives. And just before our passage, the end of Luke 12, it ends with an exhortation to know the times in which you live. Uh, Just as we we can kind of read the weather and we know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's pretty easy in Malaysia, isn't it? It's going to be a thunderstorm, right? And then it's going to be hot. But we can read the weather, we can know what the future is going to be. And Jesus says, look, you need to understand your times. Jesus may return at any moment as the judge. And in light of that, our most urgent need is that we are reconciled to him in in right relationship before it is too late. And so with uh, that context in mind, let us turn then to our passage from from Luke chapter 13. There's just two points this morning. God's rousing warning and God's gracious waiting. Point one, God's rousing warning. I think there really are just two main causes of suffering in the world. There are, There's a the suffering that is directly caused by human wickedness. And actually that is that is most of the suffering that is uh, uh, that we experience in this world. Uh, even the so-called uh, natural disasters that we sometimes talk about, often they are, uh, are man-made themselves because of our sin and our greed and the way we treat our environment. But there are... Uh, so-called natural disasters as well, or as the insurance agents probably put it better, acts of God. And Jesus is presented with both of these kinds of suffering here in Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. So we read in verse 1, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know why these people tell Jesus about this incident. Uh, perhaps because Jesus has just been speaking about judgment, uh, they're thinking to themselves, look, uh, there's a, maybe there's a link between suffering and judgment and because that terrible thing happened to them, maybe they're under the judgment of God. But it was an awful act of, of evil that Pilate had done. Uh, It's not so unlike the the recent uh, shooting that happened in in Texas. There are people coming to worship God and as they do, as they come together to bring praise to God's name, they are slaughtered, cut down. How are we to respond to to an absolute tragedy like that? In verse 4 our attention is, drawn to another type. There is a so-called natural disaster in verse 4, as a a tower has collapsed and killed 18 people. How will Jesus respond? Well, at first sight, Jesus' response is is rather shocking, isn't it? It's not quite what you would expect uh, from Jesus. we were expecting him to show maybe some sympathy, Uh, some concern, maybe to to weep for the victims who've been lost, maybe to to organise a prayer meeting for the families or something like that. Uh, And and elsewhere, Jesus does show that kind of compassion. I mean, faced with the death of his friend uh, Lazarus, as Jesus comes to the tomb, Jesus weeps. Throughout Luke's Gospel, Jesus has again and again come face to face with the the sick, with the, the hungry, with the poor. And again and again, Jesus has come with, with compassion and mercy, healing the sick, raising the dead, helping the needy. It's not that Jesus is indifferent to suffering. No, Jesus has uh, has witnessed more suffering and indeed experienced more suffering than any of us probably ever will. Jesus cares, no doubt about that. But this occasion is is different. Jesus is here not speaking with the victims of the disaster. He's being asked a theoretical question. Why? Why did God let all of this happen? And so Jesus responds. Now the first thing Jesus wants us to understand here is that that suffering is not automatically linked to specific sin. Suffering is not automatically linked to specific sin. Now, many people in this world think like that, even today, that that a, that a person's suffering is somehow uh, directly proportionate uh, to their sin. And so, if you are suffering more, then that must mean that you have sinned more. Uh, according to, to karma, all suffering is explained as a repayment for what you have done, either in this life or a previous life uh, before. It's, it's quite a horrible system, really. And so, if I die and I and I'm raised again as a cockroach or an ant or whatever it is, then that's because I've done something wrong. Or if I if I, if I in this life I, I'm disabled or I, I meet an accident or something terrible happens to me, then, then then Hinduism says, look, the reason for your suffering is that you deserve it. It's quite horrible, really. It's quite harsh. But that is not how jesus understands suffering look at what jesus says in verse 2 jesus answered them do you think that these galileans were worse sinners than all the other galileans because they suffered in this way no i tell you what about the tower collapse victims verse 4 those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. Jesus completely denies that there is an automatic connection between suffering and specific sin. Uh, of course, now sometimes there is going to be a direct connection, isn't it? If I get drunk repeatedly, day after day, then I am going to destroy my kidney. If I smoke day after day, I'm most likely going to get lung cancer. If I drink drive, it's more than likely that I'm going to have an accident and deeply hurt myself or someone else. If I live in sexual immorality, it's more than likely I'm going to destroy my marriage. There are some. There is sometimes a direct connection between suffering and sin. And sometimes, even in the Bible, uh, the Bible makes that con- connection. So look on the screen with me at 1 Corinthians 11. Paul has been talking about the Lord's Supper and the way that uh, the Corinthian church has been abusing it. Look what he says. Let a person examine himself, them, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So in this passage he sees some connection. Here is the judgment of God for their abuses of the Lord's Supper. But much of the time, we cannot and we should not draw such a connection. Uh, In John chapter 9, Jesus meets uh, a blind man who has been blind from birth and he's asked, have a look on the screen, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus directly refuses to connect sin to this man's suffering. And as we go back to the Old Testament, there was righteous Joseph who was blameless and yet suffered greatly. Or Job who was blameless and walked with God and experienced terrible suffering. In the New Testament, Jesus himself, of course, absolutely sinless, only ever loved God and loved his neighbour and he was crucified. The presence of suffering does not automatically indicate specific sin. And so were the flood victims uh, up in Penang, uh, were they worse, worse, worse people than the rest of Malaysians like us here in Kuala Lumpur? Of course not were the victims of, of Hurricane Irma, was that part of the of, of the United States? Were they more evil than the rest? Of course not. And so when I experience suffering, whilst it is a wise question to ask whether there is some sin of which I need to repent, we cannot and we should not draw an automatic connection between suffering and sin. Now, that is not to say that suffering and sin are unrelated. Uh, Jesus goes on to explain that that suffering shows that our world is not as it should be. Let's have a look again at verse 2. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent... You will all likewise perish, again in verse five, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish now, after the tsunami in two thousand and four, uh, one of the precautions that they took is that they installed an early warning system uh in the indian ocean so if uh, if this uh, there was another earthquake in that part, another tsunami came again, at least people would have a warning, time to evacuate, and and maybe not so many people would perish. And it is uh, in the same way that Jesus explains to us here that the very existence of suffering in the world is God's deliberate and rousing warning that our world is not as it should be. Just, just think about it. Back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, Uh, God created a, a world that was good, a world with no suffering, a world with no death, a world with no sin, a world where humanity lived together in perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another and in harmony with this created world. It is in Genesis 3 the Bible explains the origin of suffering. As the first human beings, Adam and Eve, reject God's will for their lives They step out to to make themselves king as they want to be like God themselves, knowing good and evil. And as a result, God comes in judgment. God declares pain will enter the relationship between the man and the woman. God declares that the world that we live in will be cursed. God declares humanity will be cast from his presence, out of the paradise of Eden into a world plagued by death. And doesn't this explain our experiences of, of this world? Our world is so good in so many ways. We know that, that suffering should not be a part of this world. We know that death is unnatural. It's not as the Buddhism says, is it? That suffering is simply an illusion that you feel because you care. As if the solution to suffering could be to just withdraw from the world and not feel anything anymore. A horrible way of view of suffering. No, our suffering is real. And we know it should not be. And so we know as we experience the suffering in this world that this world is not as it should be. It is God's deliberate and rousing warning that our world stands under his judgment. That we all deserve his judgment because of his, our, right, our rejection of his rightful rule over our lives. And so all the earthquakes and all the tsunamis and the wildfires and the droughts and the mass shootings and the coups and the cancers and the car crashes and the crane collapses and whatever other suffering that we experience in this world, they are all the deliberate and gracious warning of a loving God who wants us to know that this world is not as it should be. It's a world under his judgment. It's a world that is headed for ultimate judgment. It's a world headed for a day when Jesus will return as judge and every person will stand before him and all who have not repented and turned to him will be sent to the place of eternal suffering which Jesus describes as hell, a place of eternal conscious torment away from the presence of God. And so as tragic and awful and evil and horrible as our suffering is, and it really is, isn't it? we are to recognise in it a a glimpse, a foretaste, a picture of the even worse judgement that is to come. And that is why Jesus declares here, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's so true, isn't it, that we it's often only in the midst of suffering that we reflect on the big questions of life. When, when life is going well, when our family is happy, the career is, is on the way, uh, when we don't have, our health is all in order, we often don't think too much about God. When death comes, when life is cut short unexpectedly, when tragedy enters our lives, it is often then, isn't it, that we, we stop and think. What is this world about? What is next after death? And that is right. But it is in the midst of those tragedies that our question is usually the question, why, isn't it? Why did this happen to me? Why did you let this happen to me? And, and, and sometimes we, when we hear of disasters, we think, why would God do that to all of those good and innocent people? But Jesus wants us to know that we're asking the wrong question. What we should ask is why did this not happen? Okay. Ooh. Okay, so what I was saying is that in the midst of suffering we often ask the wrong question, isn't it? We ask the question why? Why would, why did this happen to all of those good and innocent people? But the question that Jesus wants us to ask is why did this not happen to me? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so Jesus' basic assumption to us here is that all people are sinful. Uh, The victims of of disasters or suffering, uh, it's not because they are worse sinners than other people. I think we'll have to wait till he turns this down. Can we just turn it down a bit? Ah, that's a little bit better. Turn it down a little bit more. Okay. The basic assumption is Jesus' basic assumption here is that we are all sinful. It's not that the victims of disasters are worse sinners than other people. Rather, they are just like us. And For that reason, because they are no different to us, it could have been us, but for the grace of God. The problem is we're we're used to thinking of, of humanity as fundamentally good. And so any suffering that we see kind of calls into question the justice of God, how could God do this to such good and innocent people? When the reality is the opposite is true. We are fundamentally sinful and every additional day that we are given in our lives is a gift of God. And so when we turn on the news, we witness evil, we witness suffering, we should pray, Lord, have mercy upon me because it could have been me. And as we as we witness suffering, Jesus reminds us here that the right response is that we repent, that we, that we turn back to God, and that we make sure that we are in right relationship with him. Uh, to repent is to to turn around. Malaysians understand repentance very well, right? because Malaysians will do u-turns anywhere, right whether it's legal or not, right repentance is a U-turn. It's a, it's a change of mind that leads in a change of behaviour. And so then I recognise uh, that God is the rightful ruler of my life. It is not me. And so I give up my rebellion. I stop going my own way and I turn around and I submit to him as my king. I seek his glory from now on. Uh, and repentance is not just something that I do when I become a Christian the whole of the Christian life is to be one of repentance, turning away from my sin and turning to Jesus as the Lord of my life. And the Bible pro- promise here is that it is only if we repent, it is only if we turn to Jesus as the Saviour and King of our lives, only then does He forgive us and assure us a place in his kingdom but if we do repent we can be absolutely sure he will forgive us just a couple of chapters later in Luke 15 we read of uh, the parable of the prodigal son here is this this awful son who, who rejects his father I wish you were dead give me the inheritance now he goes off to the far country he spends it on wild living in immorality and then he comes to his senses He repents, he turns around, he goes back to his father, he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you, I'm not worthy to be your son, and there is the father, running to his son, arms wide open, welcoming him back, putting on a great banquet to celebrate that he has come home. And it is one great and wonderful picture of what God is like for us, as we are like that son who has gone to the far country, who has... Taken God's blessings for granted and rejected Him. And yet, as we repent and come home, there He welcomes us and invites us to the heavenly banquet of heaven. That will be a wonderful place, isn't it? The banquet of heaven where where sin and suffering and death are no more. He invites us there. If only we will repent. Now, we may well ask then, uh, if God intends to end suffering when Jesus comes, if he invites us, if we repent, to come to that heavenly banquet, then why doesn't he do it now? Why doesn't Jesus just come back now, end the suffering now, full stop? And That brings us to the second point then. God's gracious waiting. And verses 6 to 9, Jesus tells us a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? He answered him, Sir, let alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I mean, it, uh, there's not probably too many farmers amongst us here. Any farmers among us? But I think we get the point, isn't it? If the tree's not bearing fruit, it's useless. You cut it down. It's not worth anything. Now, we should note the Old Testament background here. The fig tree in the Old Testament represents Israel. It is a metaphor for God's people who God had saved from Egypt and planted in the promised land, and God had expected them to bear fruit. And yet Israel did not. Again and again and again, they rejected him. They failed to submit to his law. They went after other idols instead. They came under his judgment. They went into exile. They came back from the land. But even in Jesus' time, they still needed to repent. John the Baptist came, repent, Jesus himself came up, repent! But they had not. And so here is the warning. Israel was already in overtime. Here was their one last chance to repent, to, to bear the fruit of repentance before it would, would be too late. But of course Jesus intends this parable, to have a have a wider application to us all. Because Jesus will return as the judge, not only of Israel, but of, of all the world. And he's just told us the only way of escape is to repent. The time is short. Our extra time has begun. We need to score the goal of repentance, if you like, before it is too late. Now there's two lessons to learn from this, this parable. Uh, the first one is that the reason for God's gracious delay is that he is giving people time to repent. So the Bible repeatedly affirms that, that God doesn't desire anyone to perish. He wants everyone to turn and receive forgiveness. And so we read uh, in Ezekiel chapter 18 these words. And live. God doesn't desire his people to perish. Again, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, we read something similar. Peter writes, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. so God is graciously waiting now for 2,000 years giving us time to repent. And why has the world not ended? Why has Jesus not yet returned? Why does Jesus let the suffering continue on and on and not bring it to an end? It's because God is graciously waiting, giving time to our, our friends and our family, our colleagues, our course mates, maybe even ourselves here this morning, giving us time that we may repent. Just imagine if he came back today. and What would happen to, to all of our friends, all of our family, classmates, colleagues, even ourselves, if they have not yet turned to Jesus as their Lord and Saviour? What would happen? He would come as the judge of of all the earth. He would set right all the evil. Evil would be judged forever, but he would judge all of the evil, including mine. And I would be in a desperate state. So he waits, and he waits, and he waits, leaving us warnings, giving us time because he does not want anyone to perish. He wants us all to come to repentance. But though God is is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, we must not be complacent. The second lesson of this parable is that his judgment will fall. See, there is a day when the full-time whistle will be blown when the plant will be ripped up from the roots, cut down, destroyed. There is a time when his judgment falls. And we read even in that passage from 2 Peter, but the day of the Lord will come, verse 10, like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are in it will be exposed. The judgment day will come. Our lives will be exposed. All of our deeds, good and evil, will be, will be spread out before him and clear for him to see. And on that day, all who have not yet repented and turned to Jesus will face his judgment eternally. And so the message this morning is to repent to turn to Jesus as Lord and Saviour before it is too late to receive his offer of forgiveness and a place in his new creation. Now just uh, very briefly, Luke also wants us to see the solution to suffering which is found in God's suffering Saviour who is Jesus himself. Uh, in the very next uh, par- uh, part of uh, Luke, which we didn't read just now, Jesus meets a woman who has uh, been uh, disabled for 18 years, humbled uh, humbled over, unable to straighten herself. Uh, verse 10, he was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Here is a woman in desperate need. And look what Jesus does. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified. God. And the big issue in this passage is that that it all happens on the Sabbath. Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day that God had given his people to remember the salvation that he'd given them from Egypt and to look forward to the new creation that he was bringing. And so as Jesus heals this woman on the Sabbath day, Jesus is foreshadowing for us the, the wonderful day when all sickness and all suffering and all uh, death and disease will be swallowed up forever when he returns and establishes this glorious new creation that will go on forever. The religious leaders, they should have seen this and repented. But they did not. And the rest of the Gospel records how it is that Jesus is going to secure this place in the glorious new creation. Through his own death, his own suffering on the cross. Uh, Luke 9.22, Jesus summarises his mission. He says there, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And as uh, Jesus speaks these words, he's deliberately calling to mind uh, one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is Jesus, the one who experienced suffering more than we could imagine. He knows, he empathises with us in our grief. But first of all, why did he suffer? Surely he has borne our griefs carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed, or we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the glorious good news of the gospel that Jesus left the paradise of heaven. He entered this world. He lived the life that none of us have ever lived. He loved God and he loved his neighbour and he went to the cross where he suffered and died, where he took all of our sins in our place, where he bore the rightful judgement of God that would come upon us. Jesus perished so that we would not have to. Jesus perished, so instead we can look forward to that new creation that he is bringing. Do you remember what Jesus says to the thief on the cross as he dies? Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so if you are here this, this morning as, as someone who is going through through suffering, uh, then, then yes, it is a it is a rousing warning uh, to repent. Y- yes, it is a uh, a gracious reminder from God that the final judgment day is uh, is coming, and God is waiting. But don't stop there. As you consider your suffering, go to the cross. Behold the suffering Savior who died in your place. Behold the suffering Saviour who understands your suffering because he suffered himself. Behold the suffering Saviour who perished so you would not have to. Behold the suffering Saviour who rose again that he might open the way to paradise itself. And as we consider those things, then no matter what suffering we are facing now, there is always hope. There is always joy. There is always a reason to persevere because no matter how tragic, no matter how overwhelming, no matter how horrific, it really is. We know he rose again. And the new creation is waiting for all who turn to him. And so we can persevere, no matter how difficult it might seem. As we seek first his his kingdom, we, we seek for every moment that we can share this good news with others. Because we do not know how much more time God will graciously wait for our friends and family to repent. Christmas is coming, isn't it? And It's a great chance to share the good news of the gospel with those who have not heard it because we do not know if Jesus may return tomorrow or next week, next year. We need to call on people to repent before it is too late. And if you are here today as someone who is investigating the claims of Jesus, you know that you have you are not yet in a right relationship with Jesus. Then can I can I urge you this morning? Will you please heed Jesus' warning? Listen to His word. Maybe, maybe we think, look, there's plenty of time for me to work all of this stuff out about Jesus. I'll do it later. I'll make a decision later on. But the thing is, we don't know how much time we have, do we? We do not know when the next disaster will strike. We do not know when it will be my turn. This is urgent. This is important. This is the decision that you need to make today. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Receive his gift of forgiveness. Receive a place in the new creation. Do not wait. Do it today. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish.